How many of you, uh, through the course of your career, have ever, ever asked for a raise or a promotion? Show of hands. Okay, a number of you. I've only done it once in my career. Um, and it was very early on. Uh, the company that I started working with right out of college, um, I was hired to do data entry work. And over the course of about the next year and a half, um, I was doing good work. Uh, had my hours increased, I was brought on as a full-time employee, but after about a year and a half, I'd never gotten a raise. And over the course of that time, I also was given a lot more responsibility um, to the point that I was really beginning uh, a brand new part of the business, um, a whole new set of services that, that the company could offer um, in market research. Um, but I was still being paid at the rate of someone just doing data entry. Now, I didn't have a whole lot of training or background or really know what I was doing, um, but I knew that I wasn't being paid what I really should be, so um, eventually came time that I had to go in to the, the president of the company and ask for a raise. And apparently I did it the right way. Um, you know, I just laid out, these are all the reasons why I'm asking for it. You know, I'm not doing work that I was hired to do, I'm doing a, a higher level of work. Um, you know, I've been doing this for a significant, significant period of time, I wasn't gonna be, it didn't look like I was gonna be going back. Um, and I had a number in mind, you know, that this is what I would like to be paid. Um, I was so nervous when I walked into that office. I mean, I was literally shaking um, because I didn't know how he was going to respond to it. Um, in the end, it worked out well. He agreed with, uh, with everything that I had to say, and he gave me the raise that I was looking for. Um, I didn't ask him for, you know, this, you know, to triple my salary or anything, um, but, you know, it was, you know, um, it was reasonable. Um, I had my backup, and, um, and so I got the raise. The passage that we're going to look at today in Mark chapter 10, we're going to look at James and John, and they asked for a promotion, but they didn't do it the right way. Um, we're going to get into that, and we're just going to see how, how bold and really selfish their request really was, um, and how they didn't, they didn't understand what they were asking for. The passage we're going to look at is Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. It says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They rep replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink? or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with, G with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that, that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. 
not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray before we dive into this. Father God, I do pray for this time that we spend looking at your word. I pray that you would give me boldness in the words that I speak, that it would truly be you speaking through me, and that every person sitting and listening to this message would be challenged and changed by your words. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage starts off with one tiny little word, then. And so it makes you think, well, what came right before it? And it goes back to what Jeff was preaching about two weeks ago. Jesus had just predicted his death. He went into great detail as to what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Jesus talked about what was going to be happening, this very grave, serious situation. Then, James and John came to him. Makes you believe that it was just a a very short period of time after Jesus said all of this, that they came up and they made this request. Even after spending all this time with Jesus, and they'd been with him for almost three years at this point, they still believed that Jesus was going to be establishing an earthly kingdom. What they wanted was to be his lieutenants. They wanted to be the ones to take over should something happen to Jesus. Now, what did he just say? Something was going to happen to him. He was going to die. What they were asking was to be the ones to rule this kingdom in his stead. They were already part of Jesus' inner circle, the three, Peter, James, and John. In Matthew's account of this story, James and John actually encouraged their mother, Salome, to, uh, to do the asking on their behalf. And according to some of the commentators, Salome was Mary's sister, Mary, Jesus' mother. So James and John were Jesus' cousins. They were trying to keep this all in the family. They were trying to set up just like all of the other kingdoms in the world, trying to set up a kingdom that they would rule. That was their desire. Jesus came back to them and said, do you think you can handle this? Do you think you can drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Do you think you can be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? And their response was basically, sure, not a problem. You know, we can handle it. 
we'll be there with you. We've been, here, been with you through all this time already. How's that going to change? They didn't understand the situation. Then the other disciples heard about this. And as Scripture says, they became indignant. But this wasn't a righteous indignation from them. You know, the, they weren't upset because they knew that James and John were in the wrong and, and were trying to stand up for the truth. They were indignant because they didn't think of it first. That's why they, they became upset with James and John. All 12 of these men were focused on themselves, trying to make a name for themselves, trying to be somebody. So Jesus had to sit them down. He just addressed the, the situation directly. He said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Now keep in mind, this isn't the first time that Jesus told them this. Just go back a chapter. In Mark chapter 9, verses 33 to 35, it says they came to Capernaum. While he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and servant of all. This isn't a new message for them. Yet they continually just don't get it. They didn't understand what Jesus' purpose was all about. We are so very much like the disciples. We don't get it. God is trying to work through us. That's what his desire is. But we focus so much on ourselves and what our desires are. We believe in many instances, whether we want to admit it or not, we believe that we are more important than anyone else. The theme of this message today is humble hearts. We don't have humble hearts. We so often think that the rest of the world is out there to cater to us and to, to what we're trying to do. How many of you get mad when you're driving because someone cuts you off, they don't use a turn signal, they do something, and I, I'll admit, you know, far more often than I should. Why? Why do I get mad at these people? They're in a hurry. Okay, I get that. I don't know why they're in a hurry. Maybe they have a good reason to be in a hurry, that's why they cut me off. Maybe they don't have a good reason. But I get upset at them because it inconveniences me. I think everything should be about me. I'm the one who's in a hurry. I'm trying to get to work. I'm trying to get home from work. I'm trying to get here. I'm trying to get there. It's about me. That's why I get mad. 
there are times that I sit back and I think, maybe that person really does need to be in a hurry. You know, having four kids and trying to get to the hospital on time when your wife is in labor, you know, it often makes you think, you know, maybe that person is in a situation where it is a medical crisis. Maybe something is going on in their lives that they need to be someplace fast. And yet I'm getting mad at them because they do have a good reason. I don't know what their reason is, but God does. When I take on his perspective, that's when my heart begins to soften and the, the humility begins to come out, the humble heart. How do we get the focus off ourselves and get God's perspective on things? We need to understand a few things here. The first is we need to understand who Jesus is. We have the scriptures, this book that tells us who Jesus is. The disciples didn't have all of this. They had the Old Testament scriptures. They didn't have the entire story of Jesus. They were living in the moment. They did believe that Jesus was going to set up an earthly kingdom. They wanted to be a part of that. You know, Jesus had called them to, to follow him and to be a part of that. That's what they were looking forward to. Jesus tells them in this passage why he came, and it wasn't to set up an earthly kingdom. As many of the, the teachers through this series have, have emphasized, the key verse in this chapter is the last verse that we read today, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is why he came. He didn't come to set up his kingdom on earth, to sit in some royal palace somewhere and lord it over the people. He came to earth to be a servant and to be a ransom. There are a lot of different attributes of Christ that we read about in Scripture because this one verse doesn't completely explain who Christ is. In the book of Colossians, chapter 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in, in, and in him all things hold together. He is the creator. From the book of Isaiah. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. 
from that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The baby, the child, is also who Jesus is. He is the healer. From Matthew chapter 8, when Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. He was the healer, and this is just one instance of the, the times that he healed. He is the teacher. Matthew chapter 5. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And he goes into the the Sermon on the Mount. He is the Son of God. From the beginning of the book of Mark. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. God the Father endorsing his Son. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. From the book of Revelation. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with, with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. All of these passages describe different facets of who Christ is. There's absolutely no way that I could stand here and capture all of who Jesus is. I could stand here for days and weeks and months and years and never capture all of who Jesus is. Our finite finite minds cannot fully comprehend him. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't strive to know him better to know and understand all of these facets better. There's a gentleman named John Fisher, who is a a contemporary Christian musician, author, um, and he uh, writes devotionals um, that he sends out uh, via email every day, um, and I subscribe to him. One of the ones that he wrote recently uh, ties into uh, this concept of just getting to know Jesus better. Um, This was actually part of a 
a speech that he made at a Christian college. Um, and he concludes it um, uh, by talking about a book that he read to his children uh, when they were young. It says, the book opens up on a big building with a sign over the entrance that reads, Everything in the Whole Wide World Museum. Once inside, Grover led us through a number of rooms, each one featuring a category of things, such as the light things room or the heavy things room. As you work your way through this picture book, you are, of course, aware that this building can't possibly house everything in the world. And you wonder how this little dilemma will resolve itself. Your speculation increases as you reach the second to the last page and you and Grover are staring at double doors with the following sign over them similar to the one in, in, on the front of the museum. Only this one reads, everything else in the whole wide world. Then as you turn the page, the doors swing open and you are looking at a pastoral scene of a hillside sloping down to a sleepy river and the faint outline of a cityscape in the distance. It's the outside world. For many of these students, their faith experience was formed in a contained environment like this building. Surrounded by others who believe, their faith was reinforced and rarely contested. The rooms of this building might be the times and places God moves significantly in their lives, but this building can't contain all of him. Sooner or later, they will reach that last room with double doors to the outside world. A challenge to you. When you get to those doors in your life, do you want to go outside to know Jesus more? Or do you want to stay inside where Jesus can be neatly organized, put into little compartments to fit your ideas of what your life should be? Second thing we need to understand is who we are. We understand who Jesus is and strive to know him more, but understand who we are. We are sinners who need a savior. Book of Romans says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, every one of us. We cannot enter into Christ's kingdom on our own. We can't do it particularly when we believe that the world revolves around us and our hearts become prideful, we think we can do it on our own. Again, going back into the book of Romans, in chapter 12. For, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Paul tells us, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Become humble. Recognize who you are. You need God's grace. In 1 Timothy, Paul calls himself the worst of all sinners. He knows the depths of his heart. And yet God used him in such mighty ways to change the world. My challenge to you on this, 
do you understand who you are? Do you have a humble heart? One that knows its place in relation to Christ's view of the world? Or is your heart prideful where you believe you're more important than everyone else? The last thing we need to understand is to understand what Jesus did. Verse 45 of our passage, he gave himself, gave his life as a ransom for many. James and John didn't understand this. When they asked him to sit on his right and his left, they didn't understand what they were asking. Jesus asked if they could drink the cup or be baptized with his baptism. He knew the suffering and the death that he was facing. That's what he was asking them about. Can you suffer like I'm going to suffer? Are you willing to die like I am going to die? They had no idea what, what he was talking about. When Jeff was speaking two weeks ago, he went into uh, a lot of detail as to what was going to happen to Jesus. With the mocking, the spitting, the flogging, he was put on a cross to suffer an agonizing and painful death. In one of the songs we sang this morning, it said he suffered and died alone. Think of that. He suffered and he died alone. Even his father turned his back on Christ because Christ had your sin and my sin. He gave his life as a ransom. He took your place and he took my place and the punishment that we deserve so that we can be in a relationship with God. Do you believe that God loves you that much? His love is that marvelous and that wonderful. Do you believe that God sent Jesus, his only son, to endure all of that for you? The disciples eventually understood all of this. They were with Jesus. They saw him die. They saw him rise again. They were with him after he rose from the dead. In the book of Acts, we, receive, we see when they received the Holy Spirit. That helped them understand more. Then they went out and they became God's agents of change throughout the world. Anyone and everyone that they could uh, reach, they told about who Jesus is, about who they were, how he had changed them, and what he did for them. 
that's what God wants us to do as well. There's another devotional by John Fisher uh, from a little while back. It says this, I recently heard the story of a young kindergartner who, when asked by her teacher what she was going to create for her art project, proudly announced she was going to draw a picture of God. To which the teacher announced, but no one knows what God looks like. They will in a minute, came the bold reply. She's right, you know. She's about to paint what God looks like to her, in her imagination, and she will be right. Not that God is relative to everyone's idea of him, but that he is so multifaceted that no one picture can capture all of him, nor can all of the pictures together make him up. She's also right about the fact that we bring God to people, not only because we are in his image, but because he dwells in us by faith. What I love most assuredly about this statement is its audacity. Oh, they'll know all right, because I am about to reveal him to them. Would that we were all that confident about our ability to represent Christ to the world. This was a major part of Christ's role while on earth, to represent God to the world. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Our task is no less significant. If part of Jesus' purpose was to reveal God to us, part of ours is to reveal Jesus to others. Christ in you, the hope of glory, Paul wrote. What a great thing to focus on as we prepare to do anything, go anywhere, see anybody. No one knows what God looks like, we can say to ourselves, but they will in a minute. My final challenge to you is this. The disciples eventually got what Jesus was trying to, to say. They eventually understood who he was, who they were, what he did, and humbled themselves to be used by him to change this world. Imagine if everyone sitting in this room did that same thing. There were 12 of them, and they changed the world because they allowed God to use them to do that. Imagine if every person sitting in here followed the disciples' model, did what they did, were willing to, to mold, have themselves molded by God. What would this community look like? What would your neighborhood look like? What would this high school look like if every one of us became God's change agents like the disciples? This place would never look the same. And so my challenge, are you willing to take that step of faith? Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you 
that you came to this earth through your son, that you love us so much and want this relationship with us so much that he died, he rose again, and that by faith we can come to you through him, that our sins can be forgiven. Father God, I do pray that as we go out from this place today, you would help us to meditate on all that he did and to meditate on your love for us, that this is what your desire is. I pray that we would be changed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.